If you're not mad about ads, and that's fair enough, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can hear this podcast in all its glory without the ads. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. Now, this podcast is going to talk about the economics of the opioid epidemic in the United States and what it's doing to America, who's financing it, who's making money out of it, and whether or not the Americans are going to solve it. It's an extraordinary story. I was telling John when I was in Vancouver, I know it's in Canada, obviously, we've got that little part of the geography right, but I was very jet-lagged. So you know where you're getting up in the middle of the night and you're kind of, yeah. you wake up at 4 a.m., you try to go back to sleep, and then you're up about 5, and then you go for a stroll. And I went for a stroll, and where I was staying in this hotel, it was just on the waterfront, incredibly beautiful. You turn left, it's got a lovely, I think it's Stanley Park, it's really, really nice. Yeah. You turn right, and... You get into a couple of streets around a street called East Hastings, and it was just wall-to-wall tent cities. I was really shocked. Mm. And it was also, it was it was the city waking up, so it was like about 6 a.m., half yeah. six. So people are coming out of the tents, whatever. And I'd never seen anything like this, right? And of course, it's all to do with, or much of it's to do with what we're going to talk later on, which is about this opioid epidemic, yeah. fentanyl, and all the various different drugs that are being used now. My my Maggie did a her J1 over there in Vancouver. And while she had a brilliant time, she was living very close to there, actually. And she was shocked and horrified. You know, it, that was her first big trip away yeah. to that part of the world. And having watched it on TV, growing up and all the rest, and then arrived into Canada and North America and gone, oh my God, is this it? Well, it's it's an extraordinary thing because, I mean, the first thing is you don't feel unsafe because the people are so addicted yeah. to this drug, which is we're going to talk about. So it's not like you're thinking you're threatened. It's more you're sympathetic, you're empathetic. You're trying to understand how in this extraordinarily wealthy country, Canada, mm. and I believe it's much worse in San Francisco, LA, Seattle. Yeah, yeah. How you can have this situation where people are living in tents 
And I know you can say, well, in Ireland, immigrants are living in tents now and whatever, but that is something that we will solve. Yeah. Like there's going to be a concerted it, effort to solve yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's a, for different reasons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, whereas, you know, I mean, if you get 70 or 80,000 Ukrainians arriving in 12 months, it changes the way in which you can actually react to it, right? But this seems to be progressive. And it was I was amazed by it because I thought, number one, why did the city tolerate this? Not tolerate the people. Why does it tolerate people living out in the streets? Mm. Don't they provide houses for them, et cetera, et cetera? And again, I asked the Canadians and they kept coming back to this idea. They said, it's fentanyl, it's this drug, which we don't have yet. But I think if you go back, and this is the reason I want to do this, if you go back to when we were kids, right? Heroin comes into Dublin in the 1980s mm. and it floods through mainly working class areas, right? We remember that so well in Dunleary, Mac, well, Dunleary growing was, up. Dunleary was an epicenter for heroin. And yeah. it was a very strange thing because everybody, you know, was doing this, that, and the other. People were smoking weed or whatever, but there was a quite a distinct difference between drug taking when we were kids. And heroin was, I remember playing soccer with a lot of guys who ended up mm. taking heroin. Yeah. And it destroyed communities. That's here in Dunleary. And there's still, if you go up in the church wall, there's still lots and lots yeah. of heroin users still up there. People of our generation, right, who are still alive, yeah. miraculously. And you get that combined with AIDS as well. So you get this strange combination of drug addiction plus AIDS. And then AIDS, of course, was at the time associated I mean, in Ireland in the 80s, with being gay and whatever. So, so many of these people went straight to taking heroin from like smoking fags, drinking flagons to taking heroin. Yeah. Then they get AIDS. Then they become ostracized from their own communities. Then they become ostracized from society. And it's, you can see the progression. And of course, inner city Dublin was much worse. Dunleary was bad, but inner city mm. Dublin was much worse. Yeah. And it affected populations that didn't have a stake. That's the key. Yeah. Middle-class kids didn't, in general, do heroin. I know one or two who did, but as a general rule, it wasn't a middle-class drug, right? Maybe because middle-class kids had more of a stake. But working-class kids, poorer kids, did take heroin. And maybe it's because they looked at the world and they said, what's the point? Or what else is going on? Or I don't have any chance of getting out of here. Well, do, do you remember, and I won't go back over the whole thing, but do you remember we did a podcast Quite a while ago, it was, maybe it was even one of the first few podcasts, and we talked about drugs and legalizing of drugs and all the rest. But I spoke about the so-called Rat Park experiment, which a lot of drugs policies was based on. The Rat Park experiment was done in the late 60s, early 70s. Always terrifying. Yeah. Because drugs, is, it's a health problem, it's a social problem, it's an everything problem. But without going into the experiment, the, the upshot of, of the Rat Park experiment was basically pointed to if you don't have any mental stimulation, you turn to something that will give you some give sort you of... Yeah. Give you a buzz. And the easy and cheapest way to do that was either drink or drugs. Well, you mean, the extraordinary thing is that everybody wants a buzz, right? This is the key. It's, it's something weird in human nature that we do quite like altering our minds, right? And you can you can talk about it and say, this is right, this is wrong, just say no, la, la, la. Yeah. But it's a, it's it's part of humanity. But it's the dopamine when, thing. Yeah, isn't whether it's you... booze or whether it's, you know, whatever it is, whether it's booze, something that excites you, right? Yeah. And what intrigues me, we're going to talk to Jamie Smith of the FT in a couple of minutes about this opioid epidemic. But again, it comes back to economics. 
This is a business. Remember we were talking to Jason McHugh last week? Yeah. This is a yeah, criminal yeah, yeah. enterprise. It's a business. So there's product, there's producers, there's suppliers, there's middlemen, there's finance, there's consumers, and then you change the balance of that product. Now, the problem is that it seems in the States now, and the reason I'm talking about this in the context of Ireland is because when we were kids, we thought crack was an American problem. It's now in Dublin. Mm. Even prior to that, Coke was an American thing. It's now in Dublin. Oh, yeah. This stuff's coming here. Yeah, like absolutely. Yeah, if, yeah. If it is a profitable business, if it is a profitable business that gets people addicted, so you don't even have customers, you've got addicts. Mm. There's no way in the world this stuff isn't coming here. And we're kind of thinking, oh, it's an American problem. It's over there, but it will arrive here. But again, if you come back to the idea, like you look now at booze companies and booze is just a different form of a drug. But now all the boozes that's been introduced, you know, the new gins, the new vodkas, the new mm. cocktails and whatever, at least it's all monitored by some regulatory framework. Yeah. So if you decide I'm going to set up a new booze company, you have to go through various hoops and the product has to be tested and all that sort of stuff, right? Because drugs are illegal, nobody tests anything. It's all under under the carpet. And what you find amazingly is that when things are illegal, it's much more likely that what is introduced into the market is going to be much higher in terms of addiction capacity. So, for example, now booze companies are introducing zero zero tankery, zero zero Guinness. Yeah. Right? So they're saying, it's a good we, thing. We, so they're saying, we know you drink, but we're actually going to sell you something else. Mm. Whereas in the drug world, because it's illegal, what's been introduced all the time is something that's going to get people more, not less addicted. And that, I think, is something we're going to have to address after we talk to Jamie. Yeah. So let's now go to the States. Let's talk to Jamie Smith, Irish journalist, works for the FT. He's got amazing stories about what's happening in the opioid epidemic in the States. Great. Jamie, how are you? I haven't seen you for ages. Good to see you. I, I'm great, David. Yeah, lovely to see you again. Uh, living here in New Jersey, uh, USA now. And tell me, look, you've been following, I know you're the, you're the pharmaceutical correspondent of the FT, you're the drugs correspondent of the FT over there in the States. Tell me, but you've been writing these extraordinarily harrowing stories about opioid epidemics in the United States. Your latest one this week, xylazine. You've been writing these stories, we've all been hearing about them. I've always been fascinated by the economics of this drug problem, whether it's in Dublin, whether it's in the States, whether it's wherever. But what you've done is you're actually talking about a new drug. Give me the context of what's going on in the States in terms of overdoses. We've heard about fentanyl. Explain to me what's going on. Well, the US has been fighting a war on drugs for over half a century. And, you know, this war really started against the plant-based drugs, you know, like heroin and cocaine. But what we've seen over the last 10 years in particular is we've seen the rise of synthetic drugs. This really started with a synthetic opioid called fentanyl. Now, fentanyl is used typically to provide pain relief to cancer patients. It's an extremely strong opioid. And um, I'll give you an example. It is uh, 50 times as strong as heroin. So if you have a... It's incredible. If you have a pencil, you have a pencil... The amount of fentanyl you get on the tip of the pencil can kill someone. So very, very small amounts of these drugs are so potent that it's really causing carnage all across the U.S. So last year, 
but there was 109,000 overdose deaths in the US. Two thirds of these were caused by fentanyl. So that's a record number of overdoses. It's the equivalent of one person dying every five minutes. And what we're seeing is, you know, we've had the COVID epidemic. You have gun violence over here. It's a country with, you know, a limited health service for people who don't have insurance. So we've seen the average age of death fall down to 76 years. You know, in comparison, Ireland is 83 years. So Americans are dying very young. And the opioid epidemic is really a key part of that. So, Jim, tell me, you know, how does how does a drug like this, which is used in the health service, how does it actually jump over, so to speak, into drug dealing, into drug cartels, onto the street? How does it get from A to B? The biggest drug cartels in the world realized that there was a huge profit opportunity by cashing in on these synthetic drugs like fentanyl. So the Sinaloa cartel, one of the biggest in the world, made commercial agreements with criminal gangs in China to buy the chemical precursors that are required to make fentanyl. So these are being shipped from China over to Mexico, where they go into these underground labs and they make the fentanyl and then they transport it into the US. Now, because so little of the drug is required to give a very potent high, You know, the way they actually traffic the drugs is changing too. So I was down at one of the ports where a lot of the trafficking goes on in the Mexican and the U.S. border. And the head of the border security there said that they tend to be using high school kids to actually take some of these packages of fentanyl across the border in their backpacks. And so it's much harder to actually stop it than previously, you know, would have been truckloads or carloads. So it's just provided a massive money-making opportunities for these cartels. And uh, it's really flooded across the, the U.S. And one of the biggest open-air drug markets in the U.S., in Philadelphia, a place called Kensington, I visited a couple of weeks ago. You know, every street corner, you've got dealers selling fentanyl. And the vast majority of the dope supply, which would have been heroin previously, is now adulterated or you know, almost completely fentanyl. And so tell me, so this is, we're going back to the economics are very simple. It's produced cheaply in China. The ingredients, they're exported to a lab. It's mixed in a lab. It's then basically muled, as they say, over the border in a variety of ways, one of which is young kids now just going on school trips, etc. And then it gets in and there's an existing network of dealers, of middlemen, of everything in the States. So it's getting onto the streets, I presume, very quickly with huge ease and... As you said, it's 50 times more powerful than heroin. So it's creating addicts almost immediately. That's right. And one of the really dangerous things about fentanyl is the type of high that you get. It's so powerful that it affects your respiratory system. So fentanyl will go across the blood-brain barrier. It will tag itself and connect itself to these receptors in your brain, opioid receptors. The way it does it, it twists on in a very specific way, and that's what makes it strength. Yes. And then the danger is that, you know, if you take too much of it and you can't really tell how potent a particular bag of, of fentanyl is, then you're likely to overdose. And it's the respiratory shutdown that fentanyl creates that is particularly dangerous. So that's why we're seeing this huge spike in fentanyl deaths. Now, 
it, it can be reversed. We have this thing called naloxone or the brand name is Narcan. It's a drug which you just can administer up the nose and that can revive people on the street. And that has been used quite successfully. But now we have a new threat. Okay. And that's where this new drug called xylazine is coming into effect. Now, what xylazine does and the reason that they cut it into these drugs, it can actually prolong the high that you get off fentanyl. So rather than a short, sharp hit, which you get from the fentanyl drug, if you mix it with xylazine, the high can last longer and it's prolonged. It can last up to eight hours. The downside is it's actually not an opioid. It's a sedative. And that means it doesn't respond to Narcan, the overdose reversal yep. drug. Okay. So it really complicates the way that you can revive people are suffering overdose. So down in this Kensington area of Philadelphia where I visited, you know, the people who are trying to revive people on the streets, and it's an incredibly common thing to see people collapsed all over the place. You know, there's 500 people living homeless in a very small area down there. They now carry oxygen cylinders to try and help revive people. You have to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation rather than just administering this Narcan. So that's one of the really deadly things about xylazine. It also has other problems, and that is that it causes huge wounds to open up for the addicts. And these wounds can extend over large parts of their legs and arms, and it could go right down to the bone. So I I saw various people down in the Kensington area where the aid workers that I was talking to said, you know, this is likely could lead to amputation. And one of the problems is that the addicts don't want to go to hospital because when they go to hospital, they can't get access to the mixture of fentanyl and xylazine and they get very difficult withdrawal symptoms. They're very painful withdrawals from xylazine in particular. So they tend to stay out on the street, not get the care that they need, and that is creating a huge problem in this particular area. Now, one other factor about xylazine is because of the eight-hour hit, the very long hit, and its sedation effect, it really puts people into this sort of sleeping stupor. So when you're walking around these neighborhoods, you have people literally sleeping on their feet, walking with their eyes closed and sleeping. This is why people have called this drug the zombie drug. Well, you know, it's so interesting you say that. I was saying to John just before we chatted to you about being in Vancouver two or three weeks ago and seeing precisely this, seeing kind of zombies on the street, almost like the, the walking dead. Like these people were totally out of it, moving very slowly. Sort of, you just think they're going to teeter over and then they come back. And what I was amazed by in Vancouver, maybe it's the same thing in Philadelphia, is how life goes on around them. It's as if the people have discounted this, as if the other citizens have discounted it. I mean, what's your sense of what's going on in the States? How's America reacting to it? How are the urban authorities reacting to it? What are people doing about this? Well, I think one of the issues with the US is it's such a divided country. You know, if you look at where people live, very segregated neighborhoods. So people have very little access to health care if you don't have insurance in this country. So neighborhoods like Kensington, you know, they fall through the cracks. It looks like a developing country. You know, I've traveled extensively. I went to Papua New Guinea, which is a really quite a chaotic place and difficult. But this particular area 
in Kensington is as bad. You know, there's rubbish piled up in the streets. There's hundreds of people sleeping rough under the subway. And there's addicts shooting up everywhere. You know, you can see people shooting into their neck, shooting into their legs, all in open, broad daylight. And I actually went round the area later with a policeman in his car. And, you know, he's visibly shocked. It's been going on for two years there, but he's visibly shocked at the situation. So there, it has, xylazine and fentanyl have both created a response. It's a delayed response. It took a bit of time for the authorities to get around to try and tackle this. But the Biden administration has made it one of their priorities. So they have started to do a two-pronged approach. One of them is the 50-year war on drugs. Well, they're still continuing to fight that. They've started to use financial sanctions on the Sinaloa cartel just recently. They issued a range of sanctions against them and they've issued charges against two of the Chapitos, who are the sons of El Chapo, who was the head of that organization before he was arrested. So you've got this war on drugs. They're putting scanners, more scanners on the borders and things like that. But I think there's a recognition now that this war on drugs, you know, it's unlikely to be successful. You have to hit the demand side of it as well in the U.S. And for the first time, a U.S. government is now funding uh, projects on what's called harm reduction. So this is where you would provide free needles, for example, to addicts. You provide fentanyl test strips, which are test strips which can check your drugs to see if there's fentanyl or there's xylazine in them. So... The federal authorities are paying for this now. And controversially, they've also got safe injection sites running now. Now, the federal government haven't actually paid for that yet. It's very controversial because allowing people to bring their own drugs and shoot up in an area where you've got nurses or staff that can help you with overdose, it's extremely controversial here. It's actually freely available in large parts of Europe, but in the States it's been controversial. But the Biden administration is paying for research into that And it's allowing a couple of these centres to be piloted. And um, most advocates think that strategy, trying to make people safe, stop them overdosing and let them access addiction care is maybe a better way to go. But it's a huge task. It's such a difficult problem. And, you know, I think one thing that we should recognise is this problem that's on the streets, this record overdoses, started 20 years ago with the prescription opioid epidemic caused by pharmaceutical companies. So onrush of these very powerful painkillers given out by doctors, uh, marketed by pharmaceutical companies, got a lot of people addicted. Then it was withdrawn, and then people graduated and moved onto the streets. And so it's, it's a horrible cascade effect, which has really caused this huge problem in the U.S. And has this, in your opinion, has it got worse recently? Has this got much worse? Are you seeing an acceleration? Because I'm aware of the story about the prescription drugs and then those being taken off. But what you're seeing on the streets, is this something that is spiking now? This is a record level of overdose deaths. It's three times as many deaths in the last six years. It's a massive increase. And it's caused by these deadly synthetic drugs, particularly fentanyl. So yeah, it's worse than it's ever been, for sure. John, you just want to come in there? Jamie, I just want to ask you, you know, in, in over the last 
few years, various different states have legalized cannabis and the cannabis use and cannabis growing and all the rest. I know it's a totally different drug, but... You know, in the old ways of talking about drug policy and all this, they always talked about cannabis being a gateway drug to harder drugs like cocaine, heroin, and now fentanyl. Do you think there has been a change in America and American drug use as a result of this legalization? If you walk around New York, uh, in Manhattan, there will be people smoking marijuana on the streets at every street corner. It's incredible. Yeah, you no, it, stinks. it stinks of weed. New York stinks of weed. It does. And most, most cities in the US yeah. now stink of weed because there has been this massive change in the decriminalization of marijuana in the US. Now, that has had huge benefits in terms of stopping, locking people up for smoking weed. You know, they used mm. to yeah. just lock up a lot of black people and put them in prison. It was a huge cost on the state's budget, but it was also a huge cost to people who couldn't get jobs afterwards. So I think the decriminalization of marijuana was, you know, an intelligent move for a drug that was used so pervasively. Has it caused people to graduate onto other drugs? I don't think we can tell yet. There's probably not enough data because it's only in the last few years we're seeing that. Is there a risk that just this common usage of marijuana could be addictive and cause harm to kids. Yeah, I think so. You know, I'm a parent myself of two boys and, you know, I don't want them to start smoking marijuana. And I think just the extent of the use here is it's very high and uh, there could be problems down the road in that respect. Right. The interesting thing is all these drugs, fentanyl, xylazine, all these, they're going to come here. What we're seeing in America is a snapshot of what Ireland Europe is going to look like in 10 years' time, five years' time, maybe in two years' time. So it's sometimes you think, oh, it's over there, but in actual fact, it's going to be over here very soon. And actually, Europol did a report in December which suggested that fentanyl was the next big threat that could come to Europe. And uh, it's just a matter of time. Because of the economics of the trade, it's so much cheaper and it's easier to transport that, yes, there is a strong chance, unfortunately, that fentanyl will become a problem in Europe in the future. So, so Jamie, you, you talked about the, the prescription drugs, and that was the original drugs, Oxycontin, I think, which was introduced by a company owned by a family called the Sackler family. There's lots been written about this. They're in the news again in the States, I hear. That's right. So the Sackler family were uh, the majority owners of Purdue Pharma. Purdue Pharma was the company that really marketed this Oxycontin very aggressively across the States, I mean, if you followed the TV series Dope Sick, you know, it really charted the rise of this opioid epidemic and the overdose crisis from this particular drug. So this week, what we saw was that there's been a very long running court case involving Purdue Pharma, uh, and it's gone into a bankruptcy protection regime. And this week, the courts decided that the bankruptcy deal and settlement could go ahead. So under this settlement, the Sacklers will pay $6 billion to victims and to states as part of the settlement. But crucially, they will be allowed to remain outside bankruptcy and keep hold of the rest of their fortune. So this created quite a, quite a lot of controversy in the US because one of the things about this prescription opioid epidemic is 
very few people, in fact, almost nobody went to jail. So there's been a lack of accountability. And, you know, it goes to the regulators who failed to really grab hold of this, to Purdue Pharma, the Sackler family. Uh, also to the medical community that was actually administering this hand over fist. You know, I mean, they, they're also not innocent. Yeah, so there's a lot of responsibility that goes way around. But certainly, I think this bankruptcy settlement and the fact that they managed to hold on to a fortune, I know, which, they, I know. which they sent overseas. So the Sackler family sent $10 billion overseas. So it was more difficult to get for the US authorities, has certainly set the cat amongst the pigeons. Well, I suppose this really goes, I suppose, Jamie, just to finally just end on, you know, when we look at the states as Europeans, it's that sort of one law for the rich, one law for the poor, which this is explicitly what we're talking about. And it's that sort of reinforcing inequality and the privilege of wealth all the time. And that this seems to be just another example of it. For sure. If you can afford expensive lawyers, whether you're in the US or in Ireland, I definitely it Ireland. helps. Exactly. Jamie Smith, listen, great to see you. Great to talk to you. And I'll talk to you again. Thanks a million. Thank you very much, David. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. How do you say to that, Mac? I mean, it's horrific, horrific stuff. Well, well, it's horrific. And I remember when, do you remember Larry Dunn, the original Dunn family, the drug dealers, and they were in the early 80s. And when he was arrested, he said something extraordinary. He said, if you think I'm bad, just wait to see mm-hmm. what's coming behind me. Yeah. That's what he actually said. Yeah. And he was talking about there's so much money at stake, right? This is the whole thing. When you have these, what they call in economics, supernormal profits, mm. right? Which are made greater by the fact that it is illegal. 
the very fact that it's illegal, yeah. right? And you have globalization. So it's been bought in China. The ingredients are shipped to Mexico. The Mexicans put them together in their laboratories. They yeah. then ship them at very low cost to the United States. There's already a massive distribution network, mm. which was originally from weed and then from heroin and then from coke. So the distribution network's there. And you spread that in and you see what it's doing to people. What it is, it's an economic story again. Yeah. And the type of people who are going to get involved in this game are going to be extraordinarily violent because the patch is so unbelievably profitable. Mm. So the violence justifies keeping the patch because the patch is so unbelievably profitable. And all the while you have, was very interesting about the Sackler. So the Sackler family yeah. softened up the American population for an opioid dependency. They managed to get their money abroad and away. Right? It's, it's, Bastards. It's a, but again, it's the system. Like oh, the no, system, I know, I know. The I system know. should be treating the Sacklers like it is the Sinaloa cartel. Yeah, absolutely. Right? This is the whole thing. But because then, so they've got their money abroad, so the, the people are softened up. So you have a an addicted population ready to be fed already. Mm. Then you have this awful inequality in the United States where so many people have no hope and so many people have no stake and they're totally left behind. And as you said at the top, they want a buzz. Life is really dull. Yeah. And it's like a perfect storm of bad management all the time. Yeah. And the thing that worries me, just to bring it home a little bit, just before we end, the thing that kind of... It's the price of weed worries, John. Well, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> a lot. But what bothers me is the fact that, you know, and this is a behavioural economics point, that there is at play at the moment the law of unintended consequences. So over the years, you know, every budget comes around every year, there's a couple of pence on, on the price of a pint and on, on wine and all the rest. And then last year, they introduced minimum unit pricing of alcohol. And that was brought in to reduce heavy drinkers' consumption. But of course, it affects everyone. It's a big, blunt instrument. Yeah. But, but all the while, it's bumping up the price of alcohol. When we were kids, we were going to the pub and we were drinking in the fields and all the rest. Now it has become so expensive that kids are turning to drugs. Cocaine, on the flip side, is really cheap. cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you have, so you have this explosion of, of coke happening in, in Ireland at the moment. Coke is but everywhere. Coke absolutely is everywhere. everywhere. And that's the law of unintended consequences. I've also noticed that Coke of, is people of our age, John, who didn't even smoke weed when we were kids. Mm. They're now, you go to the, you're, you go for a pint with them, they're in the jacks all the time. And I'm like, look, man, yeah. I know you're doing Charlie. Yeah. He knows you're doing Charlie, yeah. right? Your nose is running. You're saying the same thing again and again and again, right? Yeah. So what you're finding is, is, is a totally different type of drug taking which is people who didn't take drugs from the ages of like their 20s and 30s are taking drugs in their 40s and 50s. Yeah. Which is a completely new thing. You know, I think it's fair to say that yolks have always been cheaper than drinking. Yes. That's a general rule. But now it's actually much, much more the case. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And again, it seems to me that if you don't put a legal framework on drug taking and drug supplying and drug manufacturing, you're going to... Can you imagine, for example... Remember, in Prohibition in the States, more people died of alcohol poisoning when they weren't apparently supposed to be drinking yeah. than were actually yeah, died yeah, yeah, when yeah. Americans were drinking. Why? Because the quality 
of the hooch that was being made. Mm. It made in your back garden, right? Yeah, with battery acid and, and, and was stuff. dreadful stuff. So yeah. people were drinking appalling shite. This is the same. This is the same. Like The stuff that's hitting the streets in the United States is hitting the streets at an explosive level of potency because it's not regulated. Yeah. Right? Because there's no, you know, you can't just open, you know, a gin palace here or a whiskey palace and serve anything at all. You've got to go through regulation. You've got to be mandated. You've got to pay your taxes. So I just think humans, rightly or wrongly, like getting wrecked, right? You hope that you don't like it too much and you hope that those around you don't like it too much. It's impossible to legislate against that. Prohibition doesn't work. So my point is that if you're worried about the relative price of Coke vis-a-vis booze, which is what you're saying, mm. pushing lots of kids into Coke because it's actually cheaper, right? Then the thing is, how do you change relative prices? You make Coke more expensive. How do you do that? You actually legalize it and you tax it. And you realize that this is always going to be with us. It's always going to be with mm. us. And, and I picked up a fascinating book by a guy called Edward Slingerland. Good name, actually. What a great name. And it's called Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization, right? And the book is basically what he takes up, right? He says, Drunk elegantly cuts through the tangle of urban legends and anecdotal impressions that surround our notions of intoxication to provide the first scientifically grounded explanation for our love of alcohol, right? (laughs) Drawing on evidence from a wide range of disciplines, Slingerland shows that our taste for chemical intoxicants is not an evolutionary mistake, as we are so often told. Now listen to this. In fact, intoxication helps solve a number of distinctive human challenges, enhancing creativity, alleviating stress, building trust, and pulling off the miracle of getting fiercely tribal primates to cooperate with strangers. It's an amazing book, right? Wow. We would not have civilization, this is the claim, without intoxication. And it goes all the way back to, you know, prehistoric ideas of why people get pissed. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's a really fascinating book. He says, from marauding Vikings to bacchanalian orgies of sex-starved fruit flies and problem-solving crows, drunk is packed with fascinating case studies and an engaging science as well as a practical takeaways for individuals and communities. The result is a captivating, hilarious, and long-overdue investigation into humanity's oldest indulgence, one that explains not only why we want to get drunk, and why it might be actually good for us to get pissed every now and then. Let's go to McKenna's. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.